Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Warriors in Their Own Words is brought to you by The Honor Project. Committed to putting the heroes of our nation on record. This presentation is dedicated to the brave men and women of the United States Armed Forces. We interviewed Colonel Charles Bussey, primarily to hear about his experiences as a pilot in the famed Tuskegee Airmen, the all-black Army Air Force unit that flew in World War II. But we also heard a great story about his service during the Korean War. Bussey was a two-war hero. But his first struggle wasn't in a combat zone overseas. His first battle was at home, in what you might call the fight for the right to fight. Can you take us back to what motivated you to get into the uh, the Air Corps? All my life I'd wanted to fly. Uh, There were no opportunities, and, uh, and also I had no money, so I couldn't pay for rides, uh, but fortunately, uh, or unfortunately, the World War II came along and there were opportunities to uh, go into the service as a flyer rather than as an infantryman, for example. And I took that opportunity. Prior to that time, and this is 1942, uh, there had been no blacks in aviation in the U.S. Army, Navy, Air, Air Corps, or whatever. But anyhow, uh, they set up a school down in Tuskegee, Alabama, which is a very, very small town, the backwoods of Alabama. And they called this thing an experiment. This was a, a 100% uh, black unit, uh, the mechanics, the radio operators, the photographers, the pilots, everyone, everyone was black. For this experiment's sake, I guess that was good, uh, because uh, there, there were no areas in aviation that uh, our people didn't succeed in. So had they been half white, then they could say, well, they survived because of the whites. So this wasn't possible, as it turned out. We had very fine people, highly skilled uh, young men, highly educated young men. I was one of the very few who didn't, hadn't finished a college at that time, because uh, I was only about 20 years old or so. We had people who were uh, doc- many Ph.D. type doctors and a few medical doctors who chose to be fighter pilots. And, and it's, it's a pretty good choice if you're a young man. Uh, doctors uh, usually go from their homes to some kind of an office, to a, a laboratory or to a hospital or something. And I guess there's some excitement in that, too. But nothing, nothing like flying a fighter basic training, if you will, took place in Tuskegee, and after the completion of that, the Flyers all went to uh, Selfridge Field, Michigan. In the segregated army at that time, there wasn't much support for an all-black aviation unit. Bussey and his fellow airmen faced resentment and skepticism. They did nothing, really, to teach us to or to prepare us for combat. We had to do that ourselves. From movies, from film strips, from all kinds of sources. But we had no one who was qualified to prepare us to face Germans, for example. We got through that, of course, and we went to combat, departing the United States on the 4th of January, 1944, we flew from eastern Italy, a place called Termoli, which before our arrival was a large wheat field. Initially, they were equipped with the P-39 Era Cobra. It was a fine single-engine fighter when it was first built, before the war in 1939, 
but it was severely limited in its performance and its ability to operate at medium and high altitude. So when it got to Europe, it was already obsolete when it came time to tangle with the German Luftwaffe. It wasn't long before the P-39s were pulled out of frontline service and replaced with the mighty P-51 Mustang, a much more capable fighter with six 50 caliber machine guns. We were there flying uh, over in Europe and flying P-39s, which is probably the poorest airplane that was ever produced in this country. It had an Allison engine, and that was a disgrace. We lost a lot of people just because of the inefficiency uh, of the aircraft. As time went by, we got better aircraft. Eventually, going through several types of aircraft, we wound up in P-51s in the 15th Air Force. The P-51 was uh, a fine airplane. It weighed about 9,500 pounds, as I recall. It had six forward-firing machine guns. It had a large air scoop under the belly, which made it uh, distinctive uh, to view. And um, this airplane had a wonderful engine in it, as opposed to the Allison uh, that we flew and other inline airplanes. And this was a Rolls-Royce engine, and it, it sounded like a sewing machine, a beautifully machined engine. And my memory tells me that we took off uh, turning up about 3,000 RPM, which for an aircraft engine is really, really running, running fast. And uh, I think we had uh, about 70 inches of manifold pressure. That's a whole lot of boost. And this airplane would take off in a very short area for a fighter plane, and it climbed rather rapidly. It uh, was undoubtedly the best airplane involved in World War II. And uh, it made a lot of difference in the attitude of pilots to be flying an airplane that does really produce as opposed to some of the lesser airplanes that we had. Uh, of course, another thing happens when you have a very fine airplane uh, with a lot of maneuverability. Uh, some of the people would, our pilots, the young ones particularly, would take this thing outside its envelope and uh, we had mishaps in it too. But it was a it was a very fine fine airplane. How did the guns, the armament, compared to your opposition? The Germans liked twenty millimeter cannons, and their fighters usually had four twenty millimeter guns. And the twenty millimeter uh, projectile from those guns is bigger than fifty caliber considerably. But this is the kind of thing that the, the airplane builders armament manufacturers uh, play games with. And I, I don't know that uh, the 650s uh, were any less effective than 420 millimeters. Certainly it takes less guns, it takes less maintenance, and uh, the Europeans went for it in a big way. We had a lot of latitude as to how we wanted those guns to fire. Not the cyclic rate, but uh, every pilot was a, had the option of having his airplane bore-sighted to suit him. And some guys wanted those 650s to converge on a point out there the size of a four-bit piece at 300 yards, all six guns passing through that same very small dynamic, which gives you a tremendous impact. Other guys wanted the outside guns to reach out uh, to... 350 yards, and his middle guns at uh, three and a quarter, and his inside guns maybe as close as 250 yards, which gave him a long cone of fire. And pilots, like everybody else, uh, have these individual things that they like. Uh, I don't know. I have no idea which are best. And then some guys would change it from time to time. Which did you favor? I like to have them all passing through a little... A little dot out there that I could barely see. At that time, it was a Cadillac of fighters. There's a lot of limitations in that statement. For example, um, you could only fly a P-51 up to about, well, a little better than 30,000 feet. Not over 35, though. But the Focal Wolf would go up to 40, 45. The problem there is if you locked yourself onto him and he started climbing, at some point in time, 
some point in time, you have to disengage. And when you disengage him, you just turned your behind to him and he's going to blow you out of the sky. The reverse is also true. We were, we cruised at about the same speeds they did, but we could dive faster. Which means very simply that when you had a, a youngster there who had become engaged, a young German that is, and if he chose to break off, uh, he, wasn't gonna, he was going to die before he got home. He couldn't possibly elude American, American fighters. I, and I remember one occasion that as the war wore on uh, and Ploesti oil fields had been destroyed, uh, uh, the Germans were hard-pressed to put up significant sorties. And I remember once that I saw a German fighter diving through our formation, and he was followed by 12 P-38s. Just like they're all hanging on a string. And I don't know for a fact, but I'm sure this kid didn't get home. Probably the best missions that fighter pilots have is providing cover for bombers. The Germans had uh, fighters at that time still, and uh, it gave you an opportunity to engage in combat. And aerial combat, unlike, uh, well, it isn't totally unlike combat uh, in any other form, but it, it, it it tests you, and it, it uh, demands the very best that you have, and uh, in many cases you're competing with a man, a German or maybe an Italian even, who probably is good at his trade, and you got a chance to find out if you had been eating meat or dog food, and it was a very exciting uh, time of life or activity of life. After those hundreds of hours of training, that we'd ha- we had, engaging in combat was a very natural thing, just like being a boxer. You don't have to tell yourself, oh, this guy's going to jab, so I'd better cover my chin. You don't have to do it. You don't have to think. You can a- react and uh, act and react without uh, any prior thought. And the adrenaline takes over, and you become an entirely different man than you were on the ground. It, it's, it was interesting. It was exciting. What goes through your mind when you first see that, uh, if it was a Focke-Wulf or a Mr. Smith, when they first turn into you, what runs through your mind? You know, it's time to fight, and you've got to produce or die, and there's not much uh, margin between the two. The first one that I was involved with, we were uh, protecting some bombers who were on the way to Wiener Neustadt, and Wiener Neustadt was, I guess, probably in, in Austria rather than Germany. But they had ball bearing factories there, and uh, the, this is very important to the Germans. And we hit them many, many times to destroy those works. And uh, we were flying, and someone called a bounce, and I looked off in the distance, and I could see these Germans, and they were in a, a maneuver that I never saw before nor since. And they were flying a continuous loop up through a bomber formation, and as they went up, they were uh, putting bullets right into the bellies of these bombers. Uh, and bombers were uh, reacting as bombers do. They were blowing, uh, destructing. And uh, when the mission was passed to me, I uh, made a move on it. There were four of us in a flight. We dropped our tanks and wing tanks. And as we moved in, we just separated and each of us, took off behind one of the Germans. And he went up, we went up. And um, when you are maneuvering and not being aware that there's someone on your tail, you were, you're pretty vulnerable. And uh, I guess we got all four of them. I don't know how many bombers they had shot down before we uh, engaged them. This thing worked out this way. Um, bombers left their bases hours before we did because they flew, climbed and flew perhaps at 150 miles an hour and we flew something around 250 miles an hour. We'd see them flying overhead and we'd have a point of rendezvous with them and we took off independent of them and at that 
point in the sky, 500 miles away or whatever, uh, we joined them and our commander would advise them that we were the covering force and we were coming up from their rear and so they knew who was approaching them. So there was no occasion for uh, mistakes or mishaps and we just came in and of course in order to stay with the bombers who are flying 150 miles an hour and we're flying 250 or thereabouts because we couldn't slow down to their speed because then we couldn't react to German fighters for example. So we flew in wide S turns back and forth across the bomber formation and on this occasion as we moved up on them they were already under attack by a force of Germans and I don't know how many maybe 10 or 12 maybe a squadron is hard to say but I think we I think we shot them all down on that occasion. Now, we've only talked about aerial combat, and this is the fun part of this business. We also had a lot of strafing missions to perform. And this meant on airfields. For example, we shot and destroyed 84 airplanes at Belgrade one morning. When you have to attack an airfield, you're talking about attacking a fortress because the gunners in their emplacement had nothing in the world to do but wait until they were under attack by an American force. And they had practiced and practiced and practiced. And they would start firing when we were on the way in. And by the time we got to the point that we were shooting at airplanes on the ground, there was a curtain of fire to fly through. Some of us didn't make it. Uh, it finally got so bad that uh, we... I remember one morning that uh, we went down to a briefing and there was a curtain across the... Uh, there always was a, cur- was a curtain across the outline of the mission. And they pulled that curtain and one kid just rolled off his stool. He'd been on so many of these things. and he, he, I guess he could see the, uh, his longevity dwindling, you know. But... Uh, Ground missions, we, we dive-bombed in those days. That's terrible stuff, as opposed to what they were doing in Baghdad, uh, which was a joke compared to what we did. The bombs uh, did some thinking, and the pilot did some thinking, and uh, put it all together, and we, they were a destructive force. We didn't have that luxury at all. Uh, we did everything by eyeball, and... The eyeball just isn't as effective as electronics. Just, it just isn't there. Uh, the, the ground war was a tough one for us, whether we were strafing or, or dive bombing. It, either way, it was, a, it was a tough world. And then, of course, uh, the Germans uh, liked to play games, and they'd, they'd build a, a shack and fill it full of demolitions uh, near a railroad station. And... Our guys would see these things, and one of them would make a pass on this thing. And when you fired on this Nargon thing, it would blow up. But it blew up about the time that you were passing over it. Uh, this is kind of hard on P-51s. They didn't hold up well under this kind of bombardment, demolition or whatnot. Uh, this was designed to uh, sort of curtail some of our desire to attack their installations. But I don't think it ever did. What kind of, when you did the, your uh, close air support dive bombing, what kind of bombs did you drop? Oh, I think they were 500-pounders. I'm not sure. It was too long ago. But uh, we would go up and uh, climb up into the sun so that we were going down sun onto the target so that when they looked up, they, they couldn't uh, discern us very well because they're looking into the sun. And then when you left that thing, you bend it around to try to climb back into the sun also so that uh, the gunners on the ground would have difficulty in uh, uh, seeing you. We had many different kinds of experiences. Uh, We had two people and they shot down a German destroyer up in the Adriatic Sea. They just, uh, they started putting fire into it and 
I guess they hit a magazine or something and the whole thing went up. Uh, that was a rather singular experience, uh, but it happened. What kind of air defense did the Germans put up against you guys? They were after bombers. They, the fighters were of no significance to them at all. I mentioned Wiener Neustadt earlier, and I think they had 1,900 guns there. 1,900 was sort of a magic number, it seems to me. Uh, Ploesti had 1,900 guns. I guess Berlin must have had 10 times that. But they, they, had, they, they weren't hurting for artillery, and they, they put flak up there. It sometimes looks, looked like a cabbage patch or something. You'd have the impression you could walk from one flak burst to another. You couldn't, of course, but it, looked, it was that thick. They were after bombers, <clears throat> and they were very, very good. I've seen occasions when uh, a bomber would open his bomb bay, and just at the time that bomb bay opened, they'd take a shell inside, and this B-17 or B-24 would come apart. It's uh, a terrible way to go. And I've seen guys bail out of these things with their chutes on fire. Our fighter war was a joke compared to what the bombers had. They had a hard, tough war. I, I would hate to have to participate in it because they, uh, all that flak was directed at them. And they had to go. Over, over, over any given target, uh, there was awful lot of, awful lot of dying. We flew all over central, southern, and the near end of eastern Europe as well. We flew missions to places as far away from us as Berlin, Krakow, over in Poland, and we. Uh, some missions were so far from our base that we couldn't return. And we had a, an arrangement to uh, pick up fuel down in Russia, and that would allow us to fly back home. We um, flew some 250 individual missions providing top cover for bombers. And we never lost a bomber in that process. And no other fighter group in the world can boats the same. What unit was this? What were the this was the 332nd Fighter Group. And the group consisted of the 99th Fighter Squadron, the 100th Fighter Squadron, the 301st Fighter Squadron, and the 302nd Fighter Squadron. It was, a, it was an exciting time, an exciting war uh, for very, very young men. Uh, I'm no longer one of them. But uh, it was... It was exciting, for sure. Now, how long were you overseas then? Take us to the end of the war. I was overseas a year and a month or so. When I came back, as most of the fellows and fighters, we became instructors back at Tuskegee. And we were very proud and very happy to be able to do this because we had been to combat. We had fought uh, the best the Germans had. And we fared well, and we were able to pass on those things that no one passed to us. And I felt very good about this. Uh, we knew the tricks. Um, we knew the attitudes and all those things that are necessary to be successful as a fighter pilot. And we had that opportunity, and we made the most of it. The Tuskegee-trained pilots earned a reputation as the most skilled escorts for the long-range bombers flying over enemy territory. Bomber groups would specifically request the Tuskegee Airmen. And long after the war, those bomber pilots continued to express their appreciation for the commitment and skill of those black pilots. Anytime a bomber, we, that we saw a bomber who was in distress, some of us went down and escorted him home or escorted him back to a, a friendly area. Sometimes after being over a target, bombers would have a landing gear that would one up and one down, missing turrets, missing engines, in all stages of distress. But we never left them out in enemy territory alone. We always brought them to our base or to a base where they could execute a landing and, 
be safe to fly another day. And they enjoyed this coverage, and we did too. Now, is this the kind of dedication that led bomber units to request your your yeah, yes. specifically? Yes, bombers groups always requested this specifically, but uh, it, it was, if we were not up for grabs, uh, someone in uh, the uh, Air Force headquarters determined based on proximity to the targets and all kinds of other considerations, who would escort whom. And I don't think that any bomb group ever got us because they asked for us, but a lot of them did. And uh, we, we get letters and things from bomb groups and whatnot uh, who have reunions and things on an annual basis, and they're, they're, they're never, uh, we've never been without praise. And I think it's a good thing. After World War II, Bussey left the service and completed his college education. With his degree in hand, he returned to the Army, and early in 1950, he was given command of an Army engineering unit stationed in Japan. In the few short years since the end of World War II, Bussey found the peacetime Army unprepared for a new war, a war looming just over the horizon. What was your role in Korea? What uh, capacity did you serve? I went to Korea in uh, January of 1950. And it was a very sorry army that we had out there. Most of the people in that army uh, had been in World War II. And at that time, Japan was under occupation. There, there was very little effort on producing a fighting army. We'd had the A-bomb, and it had been so effective, I think people felt that forever we're going to be immune from enemy attack. Came June 25th, this proved not to be true. And I was fortunate, and I, I believe this sincerely, to be the commander of an engineer combat company. Personality-wise, it fit me perfectly. I, I like to construct things, bridges, roads, structures of any kind, and I love being a commander. It's a tremendously uh, difficult job because everything about everybody is your business. Everything that goes to making a soldier and putting him in a position to perform is the company commander's business. How the guns work, how our minds are stored, whether or not there's water for the troops that we're supporting. Many, many, many things. A very complex business, and uh, I loved it. And I had a very, very good unit. Um, we were, at one time, and I don't know whether this went throughout the war or not, but we were the most decorated uh, company-sized unit in that war. Company-sized being how many men? Approximately? In our case, it was about 300 men. As combat engineers, we have a number of specific functions. One are to prepare roads and trails so that troops have an opportunity for mobility. We had bulldozers and things which we used in case of artillery for them to have their emplacements that had revetments. We um, provided water. We had a, a, a capability for providing potable water from anything, brackish or whatnot. We could purify that water so people could drink it. We provided uh, demolitions. We provided sandbags, all types of fortification equipment for the infantry soldiers. At that time, and it's, this has changed a little bit, uh, we provided mine warfare for them. We provided barbed wire and we provided field fortifications so that enemy can't just run up there and swarm over you. We had to stop them out there a little bit so we can put those guns on them to change their habits. We worked hand-in-glove with the infantry people, and no infantry outfit can move very well without good engineers. And uh, we were good. Yeah, we had top-flight people, and we supported them beautifully. Bussy and his men found themselves in an extremely harsh and unforgiving environment. They were up against a tenacious enemy, skilled and talented at fighting in such miserable conditions. 
We had the most difficult terrain in the Pusan perimeter. And our soldiers stayed up there 45 days without replacements. And I've seen soldiers whose feet had rotted out of the socks and, 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 and the shoes. They were up there in the sun. Every hill in Korea was barren at that time. Subsequently, they have covered the whole peninsula with trees. Every place that they're not farming for food is covered with fantastic trees. And I just to digress and get off the subject a little bit. They are the most fantastic people in the world as far as development is concerned. They've made Korea a very, very beautiful place. And it wasn't that way in 1950, believe me. Uh, there, there were probably more than eight or ten trees in the whole country. But now it's a, it's a fantastically beautiful th- place. Their cities are modern, wide streets, avenues, parks. I, I was back two years ago and I was extremely impressed with, with what I saw. But to get back to the fighting, uh, we went over there on a piecemeal basis. When that war started, they, started, they, they sent over elements of the 24th Division. And they were outnumbered by a great number. I don't know what the relative strengths were, but the, the North Koreans uh, probably outnumbered us 10 to 1. And they slaughtered American soldiers over there because we only had that one outfit and everybody else was on the way. And uh, they, they, they gave us a terrible time. And no, I've never seen where anyone else said it, but as far as I'm concerned... Pound for pound, the North Korean is probably the toughest soldier in the world. Bar none. That's Russians, that's Afghans, that's anybody. They are unbelievably tough and extremely motivated. Even their, they, they recruited kids from 14 up and they came in there with the intention of killing Americans. And they did a fantastic job. They were, even their nurses were motivated. They were uh, a formidable adversary. Uh, and I can testify to this. Uh, I, I was extremely impressed with them. A 14-year-old Korean weighing uh, what, 115 pounds was the equal of a GI weighing 200 in that environment. And it was 110 in the shade every day in the summer over there. Uh, uh, and no shade. There were no trees on any of the mountains. So you're out there in that sun. And the Korean was much better uh, equipped for that. And climbing mountains, he's just like a goat. Uh, they were extremely, uh, uh, physically, they were, they, were, they were specimens. And they, they were mortarmen. They were the most effective mortarmen I've ever seen. They, I, don't know, I don't know what their training consists of, but they'd send three men out with a mortar, a 120-meter mortar, and uh, say, we want this mortar placed on that hill. Go to that town and bring enough people out to take this mortar of this, this base plate up there and the tube, the sighting mechanism, and these rounds of, uh, mort- of, of uh, mortar ammunition. Take up that hill, and we'll let you know when the time comes to use it. And I think they gave them three rounds to settle a base plate, and that was it. And they put them on an intersection or wherever they were intended, this thing as a target. They, they were there, and their misses were very few. They, they were unbelievably uh, efficient. The individual soldier, uh, I say physically, they were just tremendous. Uh, they could do things that... Uh, I had never seen done before. For example, one morning I saw a Korean remove by himself, remove an engine from a two and a half ton truck. And he got out of the, he took this thing out of the vehicle and I just pulled up the road there to watch this because I, I know it was going to happen but I couldn't believe it. And he got this thing onto this A-frame they had on his back and he finally was able to climb that pole so he's in an upright position and walk up out of this ditch with this thing. And I was on the way to a town 20 miles away. And I went to town and on the way home that evening, I saw this guy coming into the town, having walked all day with this engine on his back. And I don't know what a, 
engine for a two and a half ton truck weighs, but it must be 350 pounds. And you're talking about a man who didn't weigh more than 145. So when you talk about a GI and you talk about a Korean, you got apples and oranges. Uh, we've got a few guys who are muscle builders who uh, can, can show you piles of muscle, but for, to get out and actually do things, this Korean is unbelievable. It just, uh, I didn't like them. They were haughty. They were a lot of things. They didn't like Americans worth a darn. But I am telling you, these people were something else. I, uh, I enjoyed watching them work. And uh, they have a tremendous capacity for anything physical. Just, and they respect their own leadership. And they did a good job. So you respected the enemy then? The enemy and, uh, and our friendly forces as well. They, they were good. The Koreans were great performers. But if they didn't speak English and we don't speak Korean, then our relationships were poor, and they were, they were extremely poor. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. On the 20th of July, 1950, Bussy, then a first lieutenant, was driving back out to the front with a load of mail for his unit. It was a routine event soon turned into the fight for his life. Yichan was a small town in Korea, in the mountains of Central Korea. Central, uh, Korea. And I, I happened there by pure accident. On the, I think it was the 21st of July, the first mail came in. And mail is pretty important to soldiers, particularly when they're fighting and dying. And uh, I decided I would visit the platoon that I had up there with the 24th Infantry, uh, with the 3rd Battalion of 24th Infantry. When I got there, there was a tremendous firefight going on in the town of Yichan. In order to see better what was happening down there, I climbed a small mountain or, or a tall hill. And uh, from a distance, I could see a column of men moving toward the position that I was occupying. Below me, the infantry regiment had, or battalion had parked their vehicles on a levee. And I said, well, I wonder what those guys are moving in that direction for. And I said, if they burn up a few of these vehicles at the end of this column, there's no way that that battalion could turn around and head out of that place. And I said, well, and from that distance, I couldn't tell whether they were soldiers or civilians or whatnot, because at that time, everyone wore white muslin uh, garments. So I, there were a group of men who were security guard or something for this uh, column of vehicles. And so I commandeered them, and I moved two guns up, the, up that hill. And then I started a them to hauling ammunition. And when uh, these people came in range, I, I reasoned that uh, if you fire over the head of a group of farmers, they scatter and run and whatnot out of control. But if you fire over the heads of soldiers, they're down in the mud and they wait for a leader to blow a whistle, blow a bugle, hand signals, but somebody's going to be in charge and they're going to react appropriately. So I put a burst over their heads, and there was no question in my mind about what they were soldiers. And I was up on a hill, and they were down on a flat plain in a rice paddy, and we killed a great number of them. As a matter of fact, we killed everybody that was in that group. And we went down and we counted them, and that's the story of Yichan. Oh, almost. Two days later, we were ordered to send a bulldozer over to a place called, I think it's Yongdok or something like that. And all of this took place, what, over 40 years ago, so 
my memory is not as good as I'd like it to be. But anyhow, when we passed Yichan, I took a look over there and I could see civilians uh, digging graves, individual graves to bury all those people out there. And this, so I had this dozer removed from the truck and we dug a mass grave so they could just lay bodies in there. We waited since we were not under any particular, uh, not in particular hurry, and then we covered these people up. So that's the story of Yichan. The clash fueled one of the biggest controversies of the war. Three days after the battle, Associated Press correspondent Tom Lambert told the world about the fight and called it the first sizable American ground victory in the Korean War. Well, first of all, the newspapers were at Yichan, and they knew about all this. And Lambert, for example, wrote about it. But the Army says, no way can we have the first victory in Korea accomplished by black soldiers. No way. No, no, this didn't happen. Nothing happened there. And they buried this thing. Uh, except Lambert still says, I wrote what I saw. But the Army said, oh, God, we can't, we can't let this happen. Those are the people that... Those are our whipping boys. We can't give them credit for having uh, done this job. And uh, they, they still deny it, uh, irrespective of what witness, witnesses have to say. So these security guards that you commandeered, these MPs yeah. or whatever, they were black? They were infantry. Yeah, they were infantry soldiers. Yeah. But they were from a black unit? or They were from the 3rd Battalion of 24th Infantry. That's the unit that my platoon supported. I had three platoons who supported three battalions, and the leader of that platoon worked directly for the commander of that, of that battalion. What uh, kind of gun did you... Gun I took two guns up there. I took a 50 caliber uh, ground-mounted machine gun, and I took a water-cooled 30 caliber machine gun. Uh, we fired the 50 caliber until it overheated, and at about that time, we began to get mortar fire in from a mountain behind us. And that who was on that mountain was able to see and be aware of what's happening to the troops down there. And they put mortar fire on us. I lost two men up there. And I got nicked a little bit too. But not enough to, to uh, make any difference under those conditions. Once you get into a firefight, uh, uh, your adrenaline starts to flow and... You're a different man. You're, it's like kryptonite or something. It just puts you in a position you can do things that you normally couldn't handle, mentally and physically. Um, it was a very, very ugly fight. And those poor guys down there didn't have a prayer because I was so much higher than they were. Uh, we just smashed them right into the ground. That was the first battle that the Americans won in, in Korea. And it was not a big accomplishment in terms of, as pertains to a war. That was a very small thing. But it was the first time that we'd been able to meet those people head on and come away with, with any of the marbles. I'm proud to have been there too. Were you recommended for any decorations as a result? Yeah, I was recommended for the Congressional Medal. But uh, that never did happen. Bussey retired as a lieutenant colonel. For his heroism in Ichan, the Army awarded him the Silver Star and Purple Heart. He never got the Medal of Honor, because he believes his nomination for that honor was derailed by a racist white officer. That racism is something that he hopes is no longer a part of today's Army. How do you think the uh, infantry has changed? How do you think that that's different? In 40 years. Oh, well, first of all, they're integrated. And the black soldier in the army today probably is the only soldier in the world who's better than that Korean. The blacks in that army are unbelievable. They're tough and they're smart, they're strong, and they're well, well motivated. I'm, I'm very happy with what's happened there. And you can't denigrate these people because... They've got everything. Uh, the equipment is unbelievable. They, uh, you heard some talk about the tank warfare out in the Gulf there and the helicopters and the sight, sighting mechanisms that 
are available for night and day. Make this soldier more than he ever was, more than any enemy is. American Army today is just indescribable. They've got the equipment and they've got the motivation and uh, they encourage people to earn that extra pay by being paratroopers and whatnot, and they're, they're, they're unbelievable. Um, I, think it's, I think it's great. I, I'm very, very happy with them. The engineers have got better equipment than they ever had before. I just finished uh, making a contribution to uh, a military encyclopedia involved, and I did the combat engineer portion of this thing. And they've got mines, and they've got uh, bridging, they've got countermine uh, equipment, and all this does is make your job more possible. And the more possible your job is, the more you can put into it. When we suspected that there were mines, we had an old thing that we went looking for it, and if this thing buzzed, we thought we had a mine, and guys would take bayonets, and, and when you are going to have to use a bayonet to dig up a mine, your head is right down there on top of that damn thing. This is not conducive, or it's not a morale builder, let's put it that way. But now they've got detectors that are more sensitive, and uh, they've got uh, mechanisms now to fire uh, long strings of demolition out over a minefield and then detonate this thing and blow up mines. We have tanks that have rakes in front of them to dig up mines and uh, dis disperse and whatnot. And the infantry soldier knows that those engineers are going to get those mines out of his way and in a hurry. And he waits until the time is right and he goes. And uh, we've got a we don't need all the soldiers we used to need because the ones we got are ten times as effective as they used to be. A lot of this, of course, is equipment, but then a lot of it is the fact that you, knowing that you've got this equipment, you, you have a better individual capability. And uh, I'm, I'm very proud of that Army. I think they're great. Almost as good as the Air Force. It, uh, I, I watched this thing. I watched every minute of it that I could on uh, television, and I... I couldn't believe some of the things that I saw. Um, I think that we're in good shape, very good shape. And being black or being purple or whatever doesn't have the magnitude of uh, uh, concern that it used to have. Uh, everybody is there to do a job, and soldiers don't have that enmity, that antipathy, that animosity that they used to have, and I'm very, very, very glad of that. Just for no other reason, because that army can perform better. But when you're in Jim Crow Army, and you're wearing clothing that's been through the quartermaster and patched up, and they put you down below the tracks, and you have no place to buy things without walking two, three miles, and there's no exaggeration, uh, and there are signs, uh, white troops only. The chance of you being a first-class fighting man are pretty damn remote. And then, of course, if you have all white officers and they treat you that way also, you're in trouble. You, you, you just can't, can't perform well. And that's what we've had for 200 years up until Vietnam. Um, well, I guess they finally integrated at the end of the war in Korea. But Vietnam was the first time that blacks really had a chance to, to uh, perform under a medal of freedom, if you will. And I think that they've shown the whole world that uh, this is where it should always be. I hope. After he retired, Bussey wrote Firefight at Ichon about his war in Korea and about the ongoing fight for equality and recognition an effort that began with his service in World War II with the Tuskegee Airmen. I'm very happy to have been a member of that organization. I'm proud to have been a member of it. Uh, they did a tremendous job against a lot of odds, a lot of vituperation. Uh, many people in high places uh, expended efforts to keep us from being successful or even being involved. But all of that failed and largely as a result of the tremendous success that we enjoyed, thanks to our commander, Benjamin Davis, 
it removed the barriers to integration, certainly in the Air Force, and it it disappeared overnight. And uh, the people who were involved with it uh, went on to become full colonels, generals, whatnot. And um, this led the nation toward integration of of uh, black folks. Uh, integration uh, came about and it made us much better than we were before because we didn't have the second class stigma, we didn't have the uh, worn equipment and whatnot. Everything became first class all of a sudden and we of course performed better. Uh, people accomplished more kills in combat, uh, they were promoted, they had a lot of hope and and, and legitimate hope for uh, doing things on a sustaining basis. And integration does that. Considering all his experiences in the military, it's Bussey's memories of being a fighter pilot that are perhaps his most cherished. When you're a fighter pilot you, and you engage an enemy up there, you're not really fighting another man. You're fighting, your airplane is dueling with his, sort of. Sort of. Um, but being a fighter pilot, and of course, this is part of your orientation, or it is your orientation, uh, you have a special heaven to go to, and you're, you're just a, you're a breed apart from those infantry soldiers, those bums, those ant mashers. <laughs> I have to laugh about this, but that's, that was the kind of thing that we were told and we thought about it, and I guess we kind of believed it too. Uh, but it is a great feeling. I think there's nothing else, professionally, there's nothing else compared to it. Nothing. And I think that anyone who's flown fighters would tell you that. Because when you pour the coal to that devil and you start down the runway, things happen inside of you that don't ever happen any other way. Uh, and you do feel good. And when you come home, if you had a victory, and you can, in spite of the fact the old man made it absolutely forbidden that you do any slow rolls, uh, things happen to you that life doesn't provide for anybody else or even for yourself, ever. And you think that you're, you think your hips weigh a ton. And you feel it and you believe it. Uh, I still do. <laughs> We hope you've enjoyed this presentation of Warriors in Their Own Words. This program was created and produced by The Honor Project, Heroes of Our Nation on Record, narrated by Bill Ratner. This production is copywritten by Heroes of Our Nation on Record, Incorporated. Any unauthorized broadcast, public performance, or copying is a violation of applicable laws. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.